We read scripture this evening from Jeremiah 23. We will read the first 29 verses of the chapter. The first eight verses constitute our text, and we won't reread them. So we pay careful attention, especially to the first eight verses of Jeremiah 23. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. For the land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing, the land mourneth. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their force is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. Wherefore their way shall be unto them as slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall therein. For I will bring evil upon them, even the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood, and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, the Lord has said, ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days ye shall consider it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel... And had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? 
Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? saith the Lord. I have heard what the prophets said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? We end that far. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As I noted, we take the first eight verses here of Jeremiah 23 as our text this evening. The theme of our Christmas program this past week was the Messiah as King. And as you children spoke of Messiah as King, we note that that prophecy concerning the Messiah as a King is prominent in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. That's striking. And that feature is unique to the Bible. No other religion has anything like it. And that's absolute proof and evidence that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of the Lord. That God sends all of these prophecies through all different men in the Old Testament, which then are realized in time, depicting every aspect of the life and of the work of the Messiah. By faith we lay hold upon that wonder and we confess the marvelous character of the scriptures. Jesus came as the official prophet, priest, and king, the official representative of God. And you children are aware of the fact that there was only one other person that ever lived that was prophet, priest, and king, Melchizedek. Jesus came not as a priest after the order of Aaron, but he came as one who was unique, one who would be a prophet and king. Now, of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament depicting the coming of the Messiah, it's striking that that of his kingly office is most prominent. The fact that he would come as a king and a priest is emphasized, but especially his messianic rule. He came to establish the kingdom of God. And the emphasis on that glorious kingdom is very prominent already in the Old Testament. God prophesied of the Messiah who would come out of what line? The line of David. David was a king. He would come out of the line of David in order to rule on the throne of David forever. Much of the concern of the prophets was with unfaithful leaders, kings that were not maintaining faithful rule before God. They were not making decisions that were in accordance with God's will. And so God prophesied in the midst of that lack of godly government in Israel, the king who would rule well. The king who would come, who would establish a righteous kingdom. The time period of the judges, as you recall, especially emphasized that need for a king. Evil rulers brought God's curse upon the people. While God-fearing rulers resulted in God's covenant blessings experienced on the nation. And that word repeatedly was emphasized by the prophets. Now here in the midst of especially wicked rulers, Jeremiah holds out the promise of the blessing of peace. The blessing of safety that will come through the kingly rule of the Messiah. The government will be on his shoulders. He will rule forever according to perfect righteousness and the blessing of peace will be the consequence for all those who are his loving servants. We look here at the wonder of his name. His name will be called the Lord our righteousness and he will rise up as a righteous branch. We look at the king of righteousness Noting the branch, 
the warning here that is expressed to the pastors who are scattering the sheep, and then the restoration that's spoken of, the fact that he will gather his remnant and he will set up shepherds who will be faithful and who will feed, and ultimately the coming of the Messiah. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. Now we know that the branch that's being spoken of here would be a direct descendant of David. Why David? David had been a king. He had died a long time ago. The line of David had been reduced now to almost nothing. But though David was dead, God's promise remained. And God's promise was to Judah and to the church of the Old Testament that God would raise up, out of the line of David, a faithful ruler, one who would be the king. Out of a dead stump, God would do it. And that emphasizes the wonder of God's mercy and God's grace here in this history. Now this is the promise that God gave to David already in 1 Samuel 7. You remember that history? David wanted to build God a house. And God had to come to David and say, no David, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build your house. In verses 12 to 16, and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. God was not just speaking of Solomon coming, but God was speaking of something far more grand, the coming of the Messiah who would establish then an everlasting rule. God often spoke of Jesus coming from the line of Jesse and from the line of David. God would raise one up out of David. But notice here the emphasis is different. It's striking that we read in verse 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Whereas in other places it's clear that God is raising up Jesus out of David, now we read that God is raising unto David this righteous branch. In other words, God is going to give this one to David. Well, then the question is, how are we to understand David here then in that context? Is this a reference then to David or is it being used more figuratively? And it's evident that it's being used here more figuratively to refer to the church. David means beloved. Judah, Israel, and the church of God are God's beloved. And so God now is coming to his church and he's saying, I will raise unto my beloved a branch, a righteous branch and a king. I will raise him up for you and for your sake. Now the beautiful nature of this promise is evident from the sinfulness of the people to whom Jeremiah here is speaking. God comes to a rebellious people and God calls them his beloved. God comes to you and to me in the midst of our sin, our unrighteousness, and God says, you are my beloved. And do you want to see proof of the love that I have for you? I am going to raise unto you a king, a glorious king, who's going to accomplish your safety and your peace. That's what I will do for you, God says. Now that reference to the branch is a, often prophesied word. We have strikingly in Jeremiah 33 verses 15 and 16 a parallel passage to this one. It's very similar. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Now notice the striking difference there. Here we have 
This is the name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness, referring to the branch. In Jeremiah 33 now, we have the Lord our righteousness applied to the church. We'll look at that more in detail in a little bit. Another passage that makes reference to the branch, Isaiah 11.1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. In the book of Zechariah, we have a couple references as well. Chapter 3, 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. In Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them. That prophecy speaking of the fact that this king will also be a priest. Now we know that the fulfillment of this came when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus came as the promised Messiah. He fulfilled these prophecies. And that became very evident during the time of Jesus and afterward. In John 15, Jesus himself brings up this analogy when he states that he is the vine, we are the branches. He is that root, that stem, out of which his people show forth praise. And then in Romans 15, 12, And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. There the New Testament shows the beginning of God's gathering of all nations. And that comes out already here. The fact that he's going to be gathering them, verse 3, out of countries whither I have driven them, will bring them again to their folds. Later on, the fact that he's bringing them, in verse 8, out of the north country and from all countries whither I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. God is bringing his church together, Gentiles and Jews, in order to enjoy the blessedness of peace under the rule and reign of of the Messiah. Now here in Jeremiah, the emphasis is on that branch or that shoot that grows out of seeming dead roots. David seemingly is dead. The line of David has come to nothing. Currently, the leaders are sinful and corrupt. But yet, out of that, God will cause one to rise up who will be glorious. He will be born of the line of David. He will be unto the church as God's gift of a king. And he will be such as one who takes on himself that central nature of mankind, the human nature, takes on himself a real man as well as God himself, and as the one out of David then accomplishes this rule and this salvation. He is God, Jehovah, the Lord. This is our Savior, beloved. And notice he comes with justice and judgment. Now, as Jeremiah is bringing this prophecy, it's almost too much for the people to be able to fathom. One reads through Jeremiah and one is struck with the fact that again and again, Jeremiah is exposing sin. He's pointing out errors. He's pointing out wrongdoing. And then all of a sudden we have this beautiful prophecy now concerning the branch and the wonder that God is going to work. And Jehovah God now is pledging that in the midst of all this wickedness, in the midst of all this unrest, he is going to send a wonder of wonders. He's going to send a ruler who is going to be righteous and who will rule in righteousness. Now that fact would have struck fear in the hearts of the wicked of that day. That there would be one who would come to execute judgment and justice, one who will actually punish evildoers. That's what Jeremiah here is prophesying. There's an eternal terror to this prophecy. 
You know what would happen to you, and I know what would happen to me if justice and judgment would be applied to me. I would find myself in outer darkness, cast off into hell. This one is none other than Jehovah God coming in human flesh to execute perfect righteousness and perfect judgment. And he's the one who will be the truth. Now the wonder is that he's coming in love. And that's the beautiful application here of this to the church. The branch is coming to execute righteousness and judgment as a labor of everlasting love for the sake of God's church, God's beloved. That makes all the difference. Judah and Israel will dwell in safety. Those few words, beloved, are salvation. They are marvelous. There's joy. There's peace. Salvation is taking one from the deepest woe and raising that one to the heights of joy. God will take those who deserve absolute judgment and hell. And God will raise them up and give them to know a joy and a peace and a safety that is everlasting. Through his justice, through his judgment, your sin and your guilt is paid for. And through that same labor, he now covers you with a righteousness that shines forth as the sun. And he causes us then to dwell safely. That's verse 6. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. We don't dwell safely as sinners. There's unrest. There's apprehension. There's guilt. There's shame. When one is living in unrepentant sin, one is always looking over his shoulder. There's always concern about whether that sin's going to be exposed. Is my wife going to find out about it? Will my children find out? Will my dad and mom find out about it? And so there's always a fear. There's always an anxiety that's associated with sin. Worrying about the things that we did, the consequences of them, and how it's going to materialize. And we think better, things are going to get better the next day, but they don't. It just keeps on increasing. But through the labor of the branch, that sin is cast off, the guilt is removed, and now there's safety in Israel's dwelling. Now we know that Jesus was born some 2,000 plus years ago in order to accomplish this prophecy. He came as the Savior and King. The King who would rule and who would execute that safety for the sake of his church and his children. He is Lord, Jehovah, clothed with humility, with our weakened and earthly corruptible mortal human nature. He's Jehovah with guilty David in his loins. And that's what we see at Bethlehem's stable. That's what the shepherds came to see. They see in that sign a babe laying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the king, our righteousness. And they exhibited the faith by which they bowed and they worshiped that one as king. Now this name, the Lord our righteousness, is significant. It points to God's declaration concerning his church. God declares now concerning us, his beloved, you are righteous. You are righteous in Christ. And that name teaches us then about justification, the fact that we are declared righteous in Christ. And it teaches us of the God who's behind that wonder. God, in Jesus Christ, is the source of our righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's the Lord, our righteousness. Our righteousness is found in Him. He's the one who came as the holy, righteous one. He's the one who accomplished that perfect work through his shed blood on the cross. And that righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours. That's the marvel of Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen. As it takes now this passage and interprets it and adds that whereby she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. 
giving to the church that designation that is given to the Messiah. Now we know that the church is not made God, and yet God takes the church and makes her his offspring, redeems her in Jesus Christ, and makes her righteous and holy in him. We who are sinners are given to know the declaration of God concerning us. Righteous. Righteous in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? You are straight. You're like an arrow directed in perfect obedience toward God. It's not just a matter of that you've been doing good, but it's a matter that you are perfectly obedient to the law and to the will of Jehovah God. You have the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ credited now to your account. So that as we stand before God, we're given the assurance, I am righteous in Christ. My sins are forgiven, and I've given peace. There's safety. There's no condemnation that's going to come upon me because of my sin. Now I know that that standing has nothing to do with myself. It had nothing to do with Judah. It had everything to do with God's faithfulness and the work of the Messiah. I will raise, verse 5, unto David. This is God's work. Jehovah God, in the midst of the darkness of sin, will raise up this glorious leader. Woe to the wicked pastors who made promises but weren't able to carry them out. They proved themselves unfaithful for the preservation of the church. They boasted of what men could do. But in the end, they left the sheep vulnerable to the wolves. In the midst of this great wickedness, God will raise him up. God will preserve his covenant, and God will realize his promise. And isn't that the theme through the whole of history? God's faithfulness. Again and again, man makes a mess of things, and God steps in and accomplishes his wonder of wonders. And God speaks of that here. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. Jeremiah was living at the end of an age. It was the age of Judah. You remember Judah became a separate kingdom after the death of Solomon. Rehoboam, the first king that ruled over Judah. And now by this time, Judah had been in existence for 350 years. But now in the time of Jeremiah, this nation had been under the subjection of the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Trouble had come upon them. They had not been faithful to God. The last king that was faithful was godly Josiah. After that, the last four kings of Judah were godless men. The Egyptian king, Necho, got rid of Jehoahaz, and he put Jehoiakim on the throne as king of Judah. Babylon received a new king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar now came as Judah found themselves between Egypt and Babylon to conquer Judah. And as he did so then, he set up Jehoiakim as his puppet king. Jehoiakim foolishly rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And what did he do? He turned to Egypt to help him, trying to pit these two world powers against one another. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with him, and he sent an army in order to teach the Jews to submit to Babylon. He placed a siege on Jerusalem, and... He brought about the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. Jehoiakim died. His son Jehoiachin became the new king, but the Babylonians took him back to Babylon. And they set Zedekiah then as the puppet king over Judah. Zedekiah is the last king that rules in Judah. But Zedekiah was godless. And so this was an uncertain, this was a difficult time for the faithful in Judah. God's people were still living in the land, but it was a time of political upheaval as they find themselves between these two world powers. It was a time of 
tremendous hardship when their sons were being taken from them to Babylon. This would be the history of Daniel and his friends as the Babylonians came and took talented young men back to Babylon. The shepherds of Israel were at this time wicked. They were not feeding the flock. The prophets, the priests, the kings had all forsaken God. And there was constant strife, constant turmoil, both outside of Israel and within Judah. Jeremiah is living through all of this. And he's the prophet that is called now to come to the king and to warn the king of what's going to take place. You children know what Jeremiah was designated as. The weeping prophet. These kings won't listen to him. These kings wanted nothing to do with Jeremiah. What did they do? They threw him in dungeons. They threw him in prison. They treated him terribly. Jeremiah didn't just weep because he saw the temple being destroyed. He didn't just weep because he knew that God was going to take his people into captivity. Jeremiah wept over the fact of the wickedness of Judah and the fact that they deserved what they would receive. They were the ones who were forsaking their God. And as a result now, the consequences of their sin was coming upon them. The whole nation was given over to sin and corruption and their leaders were paving the way. And Jeremiah knew the problem was a serious heart issue. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Their hearts were moving them in the wrong direction. They didn't want to hear Jeremiah. And as a result, Jeremiah then was abused. But God gave him marvelous words to speak. God gave him perseverance so that for 50 years, Jeremiah wept as he brought the word, as he testified of the power of it, as he realized he could do nothing but know those beautiful words that concluded the passage that we read. Verse 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Jeremiah trusted the word. The word would accomplish the purpose that God had ordained. And finally God took him to heaven, wiped away all his tears, and gave him a glorious message to sing. But already in this prophecy, Jeremiah is singing. There's a glorious song, a song that focuses on God's faithfulness in the midst of all this darkness and raising up a king, a king of righteousness, whose spiritual kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. That comes in the context then of this warning. Verse 1, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. As we noted, the last four kings of Judah were evil men. They did not maintain God's covenant. They did not care about ruling in a manner that would reflect God's will. They were covenant breakers. And the sure effect of not serving God faithfully in office was to mislead the people of God. And that's what they were guilty of. Josiah had been the last godly king. He brought about a tremendous reform early on in his rule. But then the four kings that followed, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, all self-serving, ruthless, wicked men. They didn't maintain God's will. They didn't rule on God's behalf. They ruled for themselves. And what was the fruit of that? God's people were scattered. They were not only scattered with captivity that would take place as Babylon came and began to haul them off and sent them throughout all of the world. They were also scattered and that the faithful were trying to find a place to worship where they would not be persecuted and so that the faithful were required to leave to try to find places to worship where they were free from persecution. These kings not only allowed that wickedness, they promoted it. They became leaders of it. And it was so serious because these were God's representatives. These were the men who were supposed to be representing God. They were pictures of Jesus Christ. And now what are they doing? Instead of pointing to the Messiah, instead of pointing and directing the people to Christ, they're pointing them to themselves. They're rallying men around their sin. They're giving them false assurances. You can keep walking in sin. You don't have to worry about consequences of sin. 
They're not upholding righteousness and holiness, and we read of that. The kings and the prophets were telling the people, it doesn't matter how you live, don't worry, God's not going to punish you. They were promoting their own ideas, drawing men after themselves, resulting in the tragic scattering of the sheep. And so God pronounces a curse on them. And many of them died under that curse in horrible situations spiritually. They were held responsible by God and they faced God's wrath and God's judgment for their unfaithfulness. But God used the failure of men to shine more brightly in the midst of the darkness the glory and the wonder of this prophecy to cause the people more deeply to see the need for the Messiah and the wonder of a righteous rule that would result in safety. These men were saying, don't worry, Babylon's not going to take you into captivity. Jeremiah now comes and exposes their sin. He says, Jeremiah, he says, Babylon is going to take you into captivity. You are going to face the consequences of your sin. He points them to the Messiah. These pastors, these prophets, were scattering the sheep by encouraging the sheep to do whatever they wanted. Sheep need leadership. Sheep need direction. Sheep need to be guided lovingly. They need to be brought to the green pastures of the Word of God. Sheep are too foolish to be left to their own. They don't even know what's best for them. The sheep need the clear instruction of Christ and need to submit to his rule. The result of leaving these sheep then to themselves was to scatter them. Now, beloved, this is a warning to us as well. We must be faithful to God. Especially those whom God puts in positions of leadership will be held accountable before God. How are you leading your wives as husbands? How are you leading your homes as parents? How are you leading the church as office bearers? Do you tolerate sin? Do you encourage sin and act as though God's going to look the other way? Sin isn't going to really be dealt with very seriously by God. Are we leading this flock? Are we leading the sheep? Are we leading our children to see their need for Christ? To see the wonder of the righteousness that's in Jesus Christ? To confess their sin? Are we promoting our own ideas, our own thoughts, or directing men and women to Christ alone? Are we bringing the word, that word that has power, that word that is like a rock that can shatter the hard, stubborn heart? Or are we trusting our own words? God will gather his sheep. God will do so with us or without us. But God will see to it that his sheep will be gathered and will raise up those who will bring about that wonder. In contrast to all the kings of Judah, the leaders of the world of our day, even many ungodly leaders within the church, God directs us to the branch. God will raise up the one who is faithful. And God will establish a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. And he will bring us into citizenship in that glorious kingdom. Behold, the days come. That is, behold a wonder of wonders. God knows your struggles. He hears your cries. He is faithful to his promise. And what is the greatest need for Christ's church? an everlasting kingdom that's ruled in righteousness where safety and peace prevail. And that's the wonder. Thy kingdom come. That's the glorious kingdom that will be established through the branch, the Lord our righteousness. Judah will be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. We read in verse 6. The branch, again, is set forth as king. Now, there's many different aspects to a kingly rule. There's the aspect of the king by which a king defends his region in order that the enemies don't come in and invade it. Other kings especially are given to expanding their territory so that they're known especially for the fact that they were mighty warriors and they were able to extend their territory into other nations. Other kings provide safety. 
The emphasis here is this king comes to exercise justice with a view to Israel's safety. A just and a righteous king causes terror in the hearts of the wicked. This king will reward the righteous and will punish evildoers. He's not going to allow or tolerate sin. Jeremiah comes with a prophecy that we noted is intended to make the wicked tremble. You think that you can stand before the living God of heaven and earth and mock him. You think that you can continue in your wickedness and defy him. The righteous king is coming. And he's going to be very God and man. And he will execute justice. Sinners will be cast into everlasting damnation in hell. Who will be able to stand? In the midst of the darkness and the hopelessness of Judah, God comes with a promise that he's going to send a Savior who will accomplish joy and peace. He will do so through the branch, the Lord our righteousness. Now he talks here about the fact in verses 3 and verse 3 and verse 8 of gathering the remnant of my flock out of all the countries whither I have driven them, of bringing forth the seed of Israel out of the north country, a reference here to the Babylonian captivity and the fact of the captivity scattering and then God bringing them back after the captivity and restoring again worship in Jerusalem. But we realize that God is speaking here of far broader promise. You see, he will see to it that his sheep, every last one of his sheep, are brought safely into the fold. That they are brought into the experience of covenant fellowship with the living God. That they're brought to know peace and safety. Their sins forgiven. The guilt and shame of sin cast off. And living now in the joy and wonder of everlasting fellowship with Jehovah God. So marvelous that God will bring it to pass. And God will make it so that that wonder will stand out. He contrasts the fact that God called Israel out of Egypt with this wonder. We stand in awe of the manner in which God called Israel out of Egypt. He did so with mighty wonders, with plagues. God did it as a spiritual picture of calling his people out of the bondage of sin and death. And God says, that's going to pale in comparison to what I'm doing here. I am bringing my people not just into a Canaan. I'm bringing them into the everlasting Canaan. I'm going to give them a rest that's going to be an everlasting rest in which they will truly know safety. In the midst of darkness and wickedness, Jehovah sends a Savior. In the midst of unrighteousness, God demonstrates true righteousness. A theme repeated through the scriptures. Man making a mess of things, Adam in the garden, forsaking God, giving in to the devil, God coming and giving a promise, the promise of the seed of the woman. And then wickedness developing to such a degree that prior to the flood we read that God's declaration was that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And then God sending a worldwide flood that would deliver and save his church. Man pointing toward hell. The actions of Judah toward destruction. God sending the branch in order to turn in order to direct them to the heart of God toward righteousness. And God will raise up men, faithful shepherds over them, verse 4, that will feed them, and they shall fear no more, neither to be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. We see God doing that throughout the history. God would raise up faithful men that he would use in time for the safety and the protection of his people. Today, he continues to do so, raising up men who are studying for the ministry, pursuing a seminary instruction, desiring to preach the word faithfully. God working in the heart of men and women so that they desire to walk in obedience to God. They know the wonder of his grace in their hearts and they look to Christ in the glorious hope of the fullness of salvation in him. Godly leaders pointing to the branch, 
looking for the coming of the Messiah on the clouds of glory to usher all things into the fullness of the glory that awaits. He will act wisely. He will rule according to the word and will of God. He will administer the law of God perfectly. He forgives on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. And God gives new hearts to his sheep so that his sheep obey out of thankfulness. He will do righteousness and justice. And the effect is peace. It's safety. Sometimes we can doubt. We question God's will. When there's so much darkness, there's so much struggle around us, in the world about us, even in the church world, and in our own lives. So much pain, so much suffering that we can hardly see the way. And then, beloved, we hear the encouraging prophecy of Jeremiah. We hear the word of God. God has raised up for you a king, a king who loves righteousness, who embraces you as beloved, and who now takes you and delivers you from that sinfulness and gives you to know his righteousness as your own. And he works faith in your hearts by which you then know true joy and peace. Jehovah is declaring here what he's done for his church. He takes his saints, he makes them citizens of his kingdom, and he brings them into a living relationship of friendship and fellowship with himself to all eternity. The key to this rule is that name, the Lord, our righteousness. It describes his character and his work. This king came as a righteous king. He came as one who was perfectly right, who maintained God's will in everything that he did, born of a virgin, obeying God's commandments perfectly, doing everything that Adam failed to do, and as a sinless man, maintaining perfection as the head of the covenant, loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, offering on the cross that perfect sacrifice that was necessary for the salvation of God's church. And what happened then at the moment of Jesus' death? The veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, opening the way into true peace and rest with the living God. God establishing covenant with his people in Jesus Christ as the head of the covenant and bringing his church into that glorious relationship with himself. In him is all our righteousness. Obedience is from him alone. And faith is a gift of God by which we lay hold on that wonder. And that's the wonder of Jeremiah 33, that parallel passage, where now that name is given to none other than the beloved. None other than the church. The Lord, our righteousness. That's our confession. Jehovah, he is my righteousness. And I'm known now as one who's righteous before God. And I have this relationship because Jehovah God raised up this branch. Out of this dead root, God caused a wonder to take place. And Jehovah established his covenant. He maintains his covenant and he preserves it. All of his grace and of his mercy. So many were rejecting the word of Jeremiah. They didn't want to hear about the Messiah and his coming. They didn't want a spiritual king and a spiritual kingdom. But Jehovah promises salvation and hope. The people of God will enjoy God's pasture, his kingdom, his blessings, and they will be fruitful and multiply. According to verse 3, they shall be fruitful and increase. Spiritually, God will cause fruit in their lives as they walk in thankfulness and praise to God. They have the good shepherd ruling them, leading them, and guiding them in love that they might prosper. Do I deserve this glorious gift? Do you? Beloved, we shake our heads again in awe. This is the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ for his beloved. The Son of God came in poverty in order to give us the riches of righteousness. And the word of hope is ours. As we see our own disobedience, as we see our own sinfulness, we cling to the glorious promise and to the wonder of the Messiah. 
Our citizenship is a heavenly citizenship where Jesus Christ rules as our shepherd king. And he shall reign and prosper, we read in verse 5. In contrast to all the wicked kings who are destroyed, he stands distinct. He continues an everlasting reign and he prospers. The word prosper there means prudent. The idea is that he reigns with understanding. He's a king who rules according to the perfect will of God. He rules according to perfect justice and truth. And he will bring his church and all of his saints into the perfection of that glorious peace and joy that they might know safety in him. This shepherd king provides. He saves. He makes us free. And in him, we dwell safely. Washing our robes, making us white in his blood, and giving unto us to confess the Lord, our righteousness. And what's the fruit, beloved, of that beautiful confession and the knowledge that we lay hold on by faith? Worship. Service to this king. We delight in the service of this king. We desire to give him our adoration and our praise. And with the wise men of old, we come to Bethlehem in order to bring our worship. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the wonder of grace in the midst of the darkness of sin and unbelief, giving unto us a Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord, giving unto us the Lord our righteousness, and giving us peace and safety from the devil, from temptation, and the blessed assurance that thou art the one who will preserve and keep thine own to all eternity. May we worship and adore. May we bring our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Amen.